Hey folks, Dave Harvey here, and this is the Am I Called podcast, and we are recording right now from Naples, Florida, in a balmy 82-degree weather. Uh, But before I introduce today's guest, uh, let me just remind you to go ahead and, if you have time, pop over to amicalled.com and sign up for the AIC newsletter, and that way we can deliver to you new and customize content and get that right into your inbox. So just go over there, type in amicall.com and sign up. So like many of our listeners, I, uh, I attended seminary and I'm grateful for that experience because I learned much. Those of you listening that attended seminary, we can say we learned much. But you don't need to be out of seminary long before you realize that there is much we didn't learn and much that we needed to learn in order to have sustainable, durable ministry that's effective for the gospel. So to explore some of those things today that we didn't learn, we are welcoming back Colin Hansen. Colin is uh, an author. He's the editorial director of the Gospel Coalition. And Colin has just edited a book along with Jeff Robinson, and the book is titled 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me. In fact, since I've mentioned the title of the book, we're going to be giving away five, six, or seven copies of the book to our podcast listeners. I don't remember how many we have, so um, if you're interested, just check out the show notes for the giveaway information. That's going to last until June 16th. But 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 Colin is here. Colin is joining us. And Colin, it's great to have you back with us on the Am I Called podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. So Colin, t- tell us the story of how you decided that this was the right time for this book. You know, what, what were you what were you seeing and hearing from people who who had maybe once attended seminary that made this book seemed necessary. Yeah, a lot of it had to do with my relationship with Jeff Robinson, uh, my co-editor on this book, and one of our senior editors at the Gospel Coalition. Uh, Jeff and I were together in Birmingham. He wasn't working for the Gospel Coalition at the time, uh, but Jeff was a pastor at a local church and was really just having a difficult time. Uh, Jeff had been, uh, he had done his Master of Divinity, he had done a PhD in church history, um, well qualified as a pastor, a little bit older as well. He'd had a previous career as a sports journalist. And so um, Jeff was really everything that you would expect in in a successful pastor. Well, part of the problem is that from Jeff's perspective, he was also everything that you would want and expect from a pastor. When he got in there with these expectations like, I'm going to be a real blessing to these people and these people, it's 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 going to be good for them to have me and things are going to go well. Well, right off the bat, it just did not go well for Jeff. Um, there was a difficult decision that he had to face financially right off the bat, um, and just things never really got better. And by the time I met Jeff, we were in a difficult. It was a difficult thing, and I was trying to help him to walk through that situation. But we realized, Dave, that. As I had surveyed a lot of my friends and and, uh, classmates from seminary as they entered into those first five years of ministry, and even from my position at the Gospel Coalition, seeing a lot of what was happening, just realized that especially in the Reformed world, we often equate theological and biblical knowledge with spiritual maturity. And that may be true, but we have more than enough evidence to know that it's not always true. 
And so without wanting to denigrate seminary in any way, we simply wanted to give this primer to young pastors in particular, and potentially also seminary students and prospective seminary students, to know that we're really excited about what you're learning here, but please do not make the mistake of thinking that somehow now, because of what you learn in the classroom, you are fully equipped to do this ministry in the local church. In fact, there are 15, or as Jeff likes to say, I think our initial list started out, started out around 60 things. So Mary couldn't teach me. Um, but uh, that was the original motivation, was just to be able to provide that help to say, hey, here's a little bit of an introduction to some of the issues that you're going to face that really you can only learn on the job or at least while you're watching other people on the job. So, Colin, when you're using the word um, couldn't in the title, is that primarily a statement of of limitation? In other words, seminaries are not organized or capable of of teaching this, or is that a statement of weakness where seminaries could be doing this, but but they're not right now? Yeah, so that was a very deliberate choice on our part to say couldn't instead of didn't. Uh, didn't, we think, would imply that a resentment towards seminary. A thought that, wow, we were, I mean, if, if I'd only had a class on this, but I think, Dave, you hear that fairly often. Like, you'll hear people say, why didn't I have a class on this or this or this or this or this? But the reality is, that's not going to happen. I mean, I don't even think the seminary is, is designed to be able to do that. Um, and in fact, a lot of the practical ministry courses in seminary are some of the most difficult to be able to teach precisely for that reason. So we do have practical courses on preaching and counseling and, uh, and leadership and things like that. But it's just difficult to convey in a classroom setting to people who, in many cases, have never done it before. And in many cases are simply very young. So one of the major reasons why we wanted uh, Al Mohler to write the foreword is because we've, we've really been impressed by his leadership and insistence as a seminary that the seminary exists to serve the church, the church calls the pastors, and seminary is intended to, in many ways, bridge the gaps um, of what local churches can do when they, I mean, there are certain things local churches can't do without the seminary, but the seminary must never replace the crucial role of the church in calling. So, I mean, I'm sure there are always ways everybody in seminaries would admit there are ways to improve, but that was really not the burden of this project. We're both, actually, Jeff and I, and the contributors to the book, very grateful for our seminary experience, wouldn't trade it for anything, um, but we just wanted to underscore seminaries not designed, equipped, or called to do everything that you need for pastoral ministry. As you're interacting with seminary leaders, Colin, um, both prior to publishing the book and then maybe in response to the book, do you, do you find seminary leaders and professors to be pretty self-conscious of these categories, or is there a lot of disagreement over these categories? How would you describe how, how they view these categories? To a certain degree, yes, I have seen a lot of sympathy. I mean, one of the contributors to the book is Danny Aiken, and I already, uh, a seminary president. I had mentioned Moeller as well as a seminary president. So there does seem to be a widespread agreement that um, that you, whether your list is 15 or 60, there's all kinds of different things that the seminary not designed or equipped to be able to teach. There has been a little bit of pushback, though, 
Um, and it's, it's, uh, I think it's okay. I think it's perfectly fine pushback. But one thing I didn't quite anticipate is how, how much people denigrate seminaries today. So one of the things that I didn't really fully realize going into this is how many independent church networks have arisen. And some of this is within the Reformed world, Dave, that you and I would know pretty well. But some of it's actually outside of that. Um, a lot of kind of charismatic or seeker megachurches or things like that. But there's really been a strong push against seminaries. But it's not for the reasons that I might be kind of, uh, not critical necessarily, but but I might be, um, but I might just try to temper people's expectations on seminary. It's because they just don't think that things like biblical exegesis or church history or systematic theology matter at all for pastoral ministry. So sometimes when you, you write a book that seems to be critical of what seminaries are not delivering, I, I think it was perceived by some people, or it has been perceived by some people as some friendly fire because they're thinking, well, you don't understand. People don't know why they should even bother with seminary anymore. But it has taken me back, Dave, to, to my own seminary days to remember that even my own professors were really kind of all over the map on this stuff. I can say that one of my best classes was, was with Scott Manich, um, and it was on pastoral theology and the Reformation. And I remember thinking, what a beautiful thing to learn from the likes of Calvin and Luther and Bootser and Oculumpadius about being a pastor. Or Richard Baxter, think about his book, The Reformed Pastor. All these things have been hugely influential to me and have helped me in my own ministry. But I remember one of my seminary professors who said to me, there isn't anything that we can learn from the Reformation about being a pastor today. And his, his focus was on, we need to learn the cutting-edge new methodology for church growth. And I guess I probably should have put two and two together to realize that even within the seminary, sometimes there are very different definitions. And so what I find so valuable about it is what some people find to be not valuable at all. And there are just going to be those disagreements within the church. And I want to state very clearly that I come down very much on the side that would prioritize whenever possible an educated, trained, uh, theologically and biblically trained pastorate. Yeah, it's, it, that's really interesting because the, in that illustration that you give, the very, the very thinking that denigrates the seminary outside of the seminary was actually in operation within the seminary, denigrating other parts of learning. <laughs> well, he would have, in that case, Dave, that, that was interesting. So there was some tension in my own, in my own seminary experience between the quote-unquote practical theology professors and the academic theology professors. Um, some of them, just, and it went both ways. Some of them did not really value the one or the other. Like I said, I was more on the academic side of things, but just speaks to some of the tension that seminaries feel. They feel like they're trying to, especially in an MDiv program, a three plus curriculum, somewhere around 90 or, nine, or, or more credit hours. There's a sense that they're trying to be comprehensive for everything you need to know. And I think students pick that up thinking, okay, I'm ready to go. I am a master of divinity. Um, and this is just, it's just not true. And it also makes me really sad to know that a lot of students don't get um, heavily involved in uh, churches while they're in seminary. Of course, they're busy with seminary classes and things like that. Um, and sometimes churches don't want to take on that responsibility. But I think the healthiest approach 
is when you give yourself fully to these studies, recognizing that if God has given you that ability to set, a, to set aside that time, it's a beautiful and wonderful thing to be treasured. You'll never have that opportunity again. At the same time, embedded in a context where you're trying to translate these things to junior high students and in sermons at funeral homes, or not funeral homes, I should say, retirement homes. I guess funeral homes too would be an option, but mainly I'm thinking about retirement homes there. I think when you do that, you have a kind of balance that keeps your feet firmly planted in the real world, while also uh, taking your mind to new places and new explorations uh, that'll really set, I think, a foundation for a lifetime of faithful and fruitful ministry. As you guys were surveying the uh, the, the list of things that couldn't be learned uh, or that seminary couldn't teach. Did, did any of the problems that you uncovered trace back to the fact that churches are not accepting responsibility to assess the calling of people that they're sending to seminary? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Dave. That comes up on a fairly regular basis. And actually, in the process of this book, um, it began to change my understanding of, of, of calling in some ways. Now, I've been taught very well on this subject, and I, I still have the cassette tapes of your own talks on this subject that are that were very foundational. I'll, I'll buy them back from you. Uh, <laughs> it will be, be fun for me to hear if you, if you change your own view <laughs> on that, um, on some of those things that you taught there. But one of the things that I've started to notice, and i got to say, the last chapter of the book is my own chapter. It's my own experience of not being hired as a pastor. And one of the things that I learned there, um, and it was a, I, I recount this conversation in the book, but I was talking with my old, uh, my old boss. He, was, uh, he is a wonderful man, very gracious man, and he was wanting to hire me back. I'd left working with him to go off to seminary to be a pastor, and everybody was fine with that. You know, we hate to lose you, Colin, but of course we're glad for this calling. And this, and this, uh, this man had been a pastor before uh, he came to work at this place. And then afterward, as I was talking with him again, I was, I was talking about how I still felt called to ministry. And he said, well, Colin, I mean, it's all well and good that you sense this internal call to ministry, but it doesn't really do you any good without an external call, mm-hmm. <laughs> without somebody wanting to hire yeah. you. And it was a very difficult thing to hear, but at the same time, it was, a, it was an honest and a true thing. And I think one challenge we have, and I'm, again, I'm so glad you asked that question, is that a lot of times what amounts to a pastoral call is that a young man will sense that he enjoys speaking about the things of God and that people generally respond to him and they affirm him in that. And they put him in positions of leadership. Now, these might just be positions of leadership in, say, a high school youth group or something. Um, but, he, you know, people push him into those situations. And then they end up, many ends up, you know, going to seminary or something like that. But what I found is that in this culture of expressive individualism, a lot of that sense of calling is simply overlaid onto a personal narcissism. It's nothing more than I enjoy speaking about really important things and people respond to me and make me feel good about that. But the reality of pastoral ministry is, of course, that like with my friend Jeff's situation there, 
We live in an anti-authority culture for precisely the same reasons. We have churches full of people on their own narcissistic journeys of self-fulfillment. And that's what makes pastoral ministry so difficult is because you need to call people out of this into a radical discipleship of a God who owns their very lives and their very eternities. And it doesn't go well if the pastor himself is also struggling, thinking, wait a minute, I'm looking to be affirmed on my own personal journey. And everybody's saying likewise to him. And then it all devolves into conflict. And so I think the if, if there's one thing we could possibly do that really helped to crystallize in my mind um, as I was putting together this book, if there's one thing we can do, is that I think we need to talk to young men or older, older men who are making this transition, but we need to talk honestly about them and say that the call to pastoral ministry is the call to follow Jesus Christ, to pick up your cross, to submit your life to him, and to die to yourself. And if you're prepared to do that, I'm not saying fully prepared, none of us is ever fully prepared to do that, but if that's the life you'd aspire to, then you are indeed called to pastoral ministry, whereas, as our friend Tim Keller says, pastoral ministry will either make you a far better Christian or it'll make you a far worse Christian. Because hmm. either it'll drive you to your knees relentlessly to submit yourself to Christ for your own good and for his glory, or else it'll make you fake it. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons why the the practical theology departments and classes are so essential is because while pastoring is about sound doctrine and protecting and conveying it, it's also fundamentally about people and about the care of people and the cure of the soul. And, and, and it, it goes to the issue you were talking about of, of the narcissistic personality because pastoring in its essence is, is other people-centered and so if somebody's doing it effectively, they're, they're moving towards others, they're caring for others, they're serving others, they're making, making much of Jesus and much of others and not much of, of themselves. Well, let me, let me give you an example of this, Dave. So this, this is going to be somewhat critical of, of seminaries in general and of my own seminary in particular here. But let's take, for example, the, the course that I took. It was probably about two credits on counseling. Okay. Now, we all know that, first of all, all of us in ministry need counsel, like spiritual counsel, things like that. This is an important thing, and it's a, it's a pretty bedrock thing of what we do in pastoral ministry. It's hard to think of beyond teaching the scriptures and then the caring for the souls of, of those people entrusted us. That's, that's basically ministry right there. Well, anyway, the entire counseling experience was reading books, listening to lectures, and then counseling other students who were faking the issues that they were facing, running through all these different scenarios. Now, I'm not competent here to talk about what an alternative approach might have been to be able to do that, but let me just say this. If any church had hired me thinking I was competent to counsel because I took a two-credit class where two or three different times in the course of three months I counseled a fellow 20-something seminary student who was faking some kind of spiritual or physical ailment that I was intended to diagnose spiritually, well, I think we all would have been in for a, for a rude awakening in that situation there. That's just a little example that there's no substitute for experience through God's kind of gradual process of our own under, understanding ourselves and understanding him and then understanding these different scenarios that come before us. 
Yeah, I, I was kind of uh, pondering the table of contents and the and the fifteen different categories, and uh, and I it, it seemed to me like the chapters grouped into at least at least three different uh, broader categories: that sh- shepherding wisdom, um, leadership savvy, and and soul diligence. And when I thought about those those categories in and of themselves, I thought, well, th- those are areas where seminaries can certainly help, and and they do endeavor to help, and I and I really value that. But they can't really be on the point there, um, because the, the and the problems happen when we take ministries that I think are desired and and designed to supplement the church and we make them primary in place of the church. And so I don't think the seminary is necessarily, most seminaries are not seeking to pass themselves off as replacements for those things. But I think men that go to church or men that go to seminary and perhaps some women as well view them as as some kind of fully orbed experience where they're going to get all they need for serving in the local church. Yeah, let me give you another uh, little illustration on this, Dave. So I was, uh, I was spending kind of a, I uh, was on a trip with a number of different pastors a couple years ago, and it was led by one uh, veteran pastor in his uh, late 60s, early 70s. And of all the different things and cool things that we saw and that we did, the one thing that everybody loved was just late into the night, just sitting there and talking, quote unquote, shop with this older pastor, just asking questions. What would you do here? What did you do here? What did you learn here? And it was exactly right, uh, Dave. It was about family. It was about personal life. And it was about leadership challenges. And it made me stop and, and remember, now, wait a minute. Before there was ever this thing called seminary, what did you do if you wanted to be a pastor? Well, I'll tell you a couple things that you did. One of them is that you showed up in Wittenberg, in modern-day Germany, and you moved in with the Luthers. And you sat around the table late at night um, talking with Martin Luther and other pastors. Or you wrote a letter to Northampton, Massachusetts, and you moved in with the Edwards, uh, with Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, and you learned there. Now, there are limitations there as well. So, But the point is that kind of life-on-life mentorship in pastoral ministry um, that doesn't that that's still necessary and of course we could go back to the biblical model as well we can go right back to Paul and Timothy we can go right back to Jesus and the disciples and that kind of thing seminary can kind of do in, in some ways if you're lucky enough to go to a seminary where you have small class sizes spend a lot of time with the professors things like that but generally that's what the church is for that's what older pastors are for and it's a wonderful thing, and I find it to be very beneficial, even for, in my situation, that I mentioned that trip. Those were all pastors who were, who were in large congregations who had been there for years. I mean, we're talking at least a decade in, in many cases. And they still needed, wanted that life-on-life, one-on, or just kind of in a group setting, saying, just help me to understand here. I don't think we should expect the seminaries to be able to do all of that. Let me just speak to our listeners for a second. This topic is undoubtedly provoking to some uh, of you who are listening. And if that's you, I want to let you know that in addition to 
the giveaway that I mentioned, we're going to be releasing an article by the other co-author, the co-editor of this book, Jeff Robinson, um, that's going to further explore this topic. That's going to be released on on June 7th. So uh, another good reason to sign up for the newsletter. Colin, let's talk uh, about theological education for women. Um, What do you think are the, what do you see are the pressing questions that are facing reformed seminaries when it comes to training women for church service? Yeah, big question right there and could go in a lot of different directions. But I will say that the, this issue of calling for women in particular is, is difficult for the exact same reasons that I've been describing here, but difficult for additional reasons because, one, there are fewer models, and two, there are fewer clear paths for for them. So, for example, the same issues of calling that we're talking about here are going to come up with a woman who wants to be a teacher in women's ministry, who wants to be an editor for a place like the Gospel Coalition, um, or who wants to become an overseas missionary. You've got the, or, or a campus worker, a campus evangelist, or anything like that, or, or a children's minister. Again, I could go on. Or a counselor. You can see a lot of different options here. And the seminary is the place or one of the places to be able to equip all of these different uh, all of these different positions. And so it's a difficult situation for women because in in one sense, because a lot of places want to helpfully um, be very clear about what men and women biblically are called to be able to do and women not being called into these pastoral or elder positions of preaching and teaching for the entire congregation. They want to protect that, but sometimes they can be tempted to go so far beyond that that they can then cast a certain kind of suspicion on any kind of theological or biblical training for women. And that, that becomes a major challenge. I, um, I've counseled a number of different uh, women heading into seminary, and one of the difficult things I've had to, had to talk with them about is that if they want to get a serious theological education— They have to be careful about where they go because in some places, one, people are just going to assume that they're liberals, that they're there to, you know, to to pursue ministry for certain unbiblical reasons. And so there's just going to be this cast of suspicion or the suspicion cast on them. And that makes for a very negative environment for them. In another sense, uh, they're going to be seen as objects of uh, for for marriage. And so. There's just going to be a lot of attention thrown on them in that sense. And again, it's, it's, not, it's not bad that, that those relationships would develop and things like that. It's just there are a lot of challenges for women who are pursuing seminary or just uh, for very good, valid, biblical reasons. And I haven't even come close to exhausting all of those different challenges that they might face. I'll mention another one that I've seen personally. If you're a woman who's studying in seminary not to be a senior pastor or to, or to be a, a teaching pastor, you sometimes even face criticism from other women who are in that same seminary program who do want to be a pastor. So you face a double kind of isolation there from your male students and from the other female students. And so those are some of the, the practical issues involved there. Um, and different seminaries, I have to be clear, are trying to do different things, and they have different views on this. So I'm not, I don't want to put everybody in the same bucket, but 
it's a particular challenge that I've seen again and again. But I will say this, when I look at the, um, uh, the women who work for us in the Gospel Coalition and serve and teach and all that sort of stuff, I'm grateful for the serious training that they get because that's what we need in our editors, no matter what kind of content they're writing or, or, um, or teaching or editing for us. So I think we would all agree that we need to be encouraging women at all levels to pursue um, this kind of theological training for their own good and for the good of everybody that they teach in whatever environments they're in. Yeah, it, it does seem like uh, there's there's no question that that the the vision and the borders of certain forms of complementarianism renders seminary attendance either unnecessary or or um, com- like it's a compromise. Well, I mean, if if I'm just if I'm just thinking about the the women who lead our children's ministry or the women who are writing the books or the women uh, that my wife reads or that I read or the women who, I mean, on and on and on, I could talk about all these different things. Would I rather have them have a positive seminary experience where they've been exposed to all of the same things that I've been exposed to? Well, yes, of course. I, I, I think about our friend, uh, Ligon Duncan, and one thing that he says, let, let's take, for example, uh, the, the women who are doing incredible work in campus ministry, okay? Talk about evangelism, discipleship, all this, all this stuff, teaching in campus environments, okay? Well, a lot of times people will say something like, who has time? You know, who has time for that, for, for seminary these days? The, the need is so urgent. Well, I can agree with that in a certain sense, and I come out of a Campus Crusade background, and Bill Bright dropped out of seminary twice, I think, because <laughs> he was too busy evangelizing. It's a fun story. Uh, but I think about what Ligon Duncan says, which is, at this time of all times, we actually need to know more, not less, to be doing effective ministry when it comes to all of the challenges that we face, including and up to questions of fundamental identity of who is a human let alone then even who is God. And so when I think about the the women who are doing that kind of work, I would love for them to get this full, robust theological education. That's not going to answer every question. That's exactly what we're talking about here. But it's going to equip them with a lot of different tools to be able to effectively disciple this rising generation that is so confused. Um, so that's just one example right there that comes out of a, lo- a lot of my own ministry experience. But it just I, I, I can't see why more of us wouldn't want that to happen um, and would work toward that that aim to do whatever possible to make it uh, to make seminary a plausible alternative for these women. Yeah, it seems like we have to clarify the ends um, that are going to be served by doing that, because I think the theological study is valuable, certainly valuable in and of itself. But I think that most people are going to seminary not simply to learn, but also to apply uh, either vocationally or in their service to the church. And I think it's it's when we move from the education to the areas of service that this becomes so complex for the question of women, because there are ways that uh, that uh, you know we think about uh, 
complementarianism that sometimes really narrows the field of of service for women and and unnecessarily so so that you know and it perpetuates a, a patriarchal system that's not really necessary to responsible complementarianism yeah you're you're preaching to the choir there and i'm blessed that i i um have worked with some incredibly capable women at the Beeson Divinity School where I'm on the advisory board, attended seminary with very, very gifted and godly, and, um, and in many cases far excelling me academically at, uh, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and have likewise been able to hire um, women very well equipped and uh, to, to teach and to, and to lead in many cases and to write. Um, but all of that within a clear biblical framework. Um, and then, I, I mean, just at the Gospel Coalition, to take a step back on this, we have more women than men attending our national conferences, which is in large part due to the fact that we do a women's conference um, that is as large or even larger than our national conference, which is both men and women. And when you see that, I mean, we, we consistently hear women tell us that they desire this so much and there is no other place where they can get that kind of serious theological education and we're preparing and we're you know what we're going to be studying in mid-june is is deuteronomy and it, we're going to be led by uh, mary wilson our director of women's initiatives who has a phd just graduated with her, her phd in deuteronomy from trinity evangelical, evangelical divinity school and to me, that is among the, if not the most exciting things the Gospel Coalition is doing. And I've seen that whole thing develop from when I started in 2010 to our first women's event in 2012, all the way through now to 2018. And I'm just eager for, for that model to continue and to grow, not with changing our beliefs about what the Bible teaches about the proper roles for men and women, but celebrating how God has is raising up a generation of women to know, uh, to know and to teach uh, the scriptures, especially to other women. And um, it's just very exciting. I'm excited about a lot of the seminaries that are playing a key role in that work. That's great and, and very encouraging. Um, Colin, let, let, let me move to, to wrap up here, but I, I want to make this last question a very practical one. Let's, let's say one of our listeners is, is considering a seminary and, and wondering how to go about uh, the process of selecting a seminary. Why don't you outline for them what might be a wise process for choosing the right seminary? Yeah, so I am lucky to be able to do this a lot uh, through just my work at the Gospel Coalition with all kinds of different seminaries and just had this conversation with a, with a friend last week. And you, I got this advice from Mark Dever years ago. And Mark said that when it comes to undergraduate and when it comes to even a PhD, um, you can be rather flexible when it comes to the confessional identity of a school. You know, there are good churches and good, um, and good ministries and all these different places. And so you don't have to worry quite so much about what you're going to be taught and being swayed and things like that. They said, when it comes to seminary, you want a place that you can trust. You want to not just because they're going to tell you what you already know, 
but because you can really dive deep into serious lifetime learning questions. And now that might look different. It might look like a Westminster or a Southern Seminary with a with a clear denominational identity or at least a, a narrower confessional identity, or it might look like a Trinity or a Beeson. We're going to learn from a lot of different people within the same evangelical framework. But that's one thing I strongly recommend is just to start there with a place that you know you can trust. And I do think it's really um, another piece of advice that I got in seminary, actually, is I, I had a lot of guilt about what classes to take. And I thought, well, when else am I going to be able to take advanced Greek grammar and a study of the intertestamental period? But then I had, or, or take the hardest Hebrew professor I could possibly find. But I remember other people coming back and just telling me, okay, like, you, you've got to be careful about these courses, and you've got to be able to select the professors who you know you're going to be able to study with and profit from and learn from. And so prioritize the professors more than anything else. They're not only their, really, above all, their Christian character, but also then their, their credibility. Uh, within the within the evangelical world, and so that you find a place that you know you can trust, decide whether or not you're looking for something that has a, a clear uh, kind of a clear denominational connection, or if you're looking for a little something a little bit more generic within the evangelical world, and then choose the place where you know that you're going to get these top-notch scholars who are who are above all uh, men and women of stellar Christian character. Um, if you do that, you're going to be fine. And thankfully, there are a number of different seminaries that fit that bill right there. Um, but one, one challenge I know that it comes back to, the last thing I'll mention, is that sometimes you're, you're in a seminary and you're, and you're thinking that some, some professors are good at research, some are good at teaching, some are not good at either. You want to eliminate as much as possible the scenarios where you, you have a number of professors who don't seem to be good at either. Um, and yet it does happen sometimes. And so the quality of the professor you get does go a long way. You'll have two people who will take the same class. And for some people, it changes their life. And for some people, it's just easily forgotten. So you do want to be very clear and choose the best, um, the best of your ability there. And so I'm, I'm more confident now, Dave, than I ever have been, at least in my lifetime, about the quality um, and the confession of our seminaries. So I'm thankful that I can and, and do recommend, uh, you know, between several of them. Um, but you do still have to be very deliberate about that process. If you're listening and you're, uh, and you're looking to take that first step, you know, Colin is punctuating the importance of finding a place that you know and trust, and maybe you don't know a place. Um, hopefully you're involved in a local church, and hopefully you're there in part because you believe your pastor is teaching and preaching in a way that's consistent with Scripture and consistent with the Gospel. So let me encourage you to talk to your pastor and and get his guidance on either where he went or how he would advise you in this question. If you don't have a pastor, find, a, find one somewhere or somebody you respect. Another thing you can do is just consider um, the writers who are informing and influencing your theological convictions um, who, who are you reading? Who has shaped you? And where did they go to school? And, and who do they reference? Um, so, you know, you could just do a little research and find out some of the best institutions to consider 
As Colin said, there are ones that are certainly worthy of the investment of your time and your study. Colin, you are always um, wonderful to interview because you deliver insight and analysis that's worth hearing, and, and you also have this whole practical and helpful side. So thanks so much for joining us today on the Am I Called podcast. Oh, that's very kind of you, Dave. Folks, just remember, um, check out the show notes to find out when you can get a copy or how you can get a copy of Colin and Jeff's book, 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me. That's what we were talking about today. And and if you're going onto the site, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, but mostly just thanks for joining us on this episode of the Am I Called podcast. Mm-hmm.